What a great testimony of faith that Christ indeed is our hope in life and our hope in death. I hope that that is true for you. If you don't have a sermon outline, please lift your hand and someone will bring one to you. They will be glad to share it with you. You'll need to take out your Bible and take out a pen and take out that outline. It's in your bulletin. The way our church uh, studies the Bible, we really need a little bit of notes to help us to pay attention. Well, we've just been singing the great gospel of Christ and how his resurrection is part of what um, helps us to see what God has done in loving us. Now, we are finishing our study in this little letter of 1 John. If you're new to us today, we want you to just kind of understand that all the way in the back of your New Testament, there's three little letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. 1 John is the one that we're finishing right now. In fact, this is message number 33 of looking at this letter. You say, wow, 33 sermons from just five little chapters. Yes, the Word of God is so rich and so deep, we could spend a lifetime in any one book of the Bible and still not exhaust its meaning, but indeed, we've come to study once again. Uh, I want us to review for just a minute. Look at the screen in front of you for just a second. Last week, we looked at the blessed assurance of belonging to God. Now, we're going to see a few more reviews here in just a minute. This morning, though, we're looking at this blessed assurance of really knowing the one true God, of the one true God, the blessed assurance of knowing Him, the blessed assurance of seeing Him and experiencing Him. Um, I think it's good for us as a church. Over the last year, we've been studying this book. Let's take just a couple of minutes and remind ourselves of the big picture that we've studied for the last year and a half. And boy, if you're new to us this morning, you get to come in on the very end of it, and you get to see the overview, um, and it will help you so much. And I think that you'll find great encouragement even from the review. So let's look at the review of this little letter of 1 John. The first thing that we see is that 1 John was written to call believers back to three things. So believers were perhaps drifting some when John saw this. This is late in his life. This is uh, about 40 or 50 years after Jesus had died and, and rose again and ascended to the Father. So the church had been going for about 40 or 50 years by the time John writes this, and he writes it to a church that now has grown and is spread all across the Mediterranean world, and he wants to remind them of a few things. He's calling them back to fill it in true doctrine. He doesn't want them to be deceived with false doctrine. So that was a problem in the first century, just like it's a problem today in this century. Not only does he call them to true doctrine, he calls them to obedient living. Christians are are always prone toward not being obedient. We can wander away into disobedience. And John is calling them to be obedient in the way that they live. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to what? Obey me. If you love me, you're going to obey me. It's an evidence of whether we know him, whether we love him, if we obey him. And that's exactly what 1 John is about. And not only that, but it's also about fervent devotion. It's about a true love, a true love that leads and guides our life. 
that we come devoted followers of Christ, not haphazard followers of Christ, not followers of Christ that it's just when it's convenient. It's not just Easter. It's not just Christmas, right? It's, it's every Lord's Day. That's part of the picture here is, is that we value him and we follow him with devotion. Well, look at the second group here. First John also gives us some tests. Fill in that word test and then put a big circle around it because that's important. These tests come up cyclically over and over again in these five little chapters. He brings them up at least three times. Um, notice here, do you, and these are tests of whether your faith is genuine. These are tests of whether your faith is genuine. Number one, do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah? I mean, do you just believe that he was a historical figure? Or do you believe that he was the one anointed and ordained by God to take away your sin? This is a very big difference. Do we believe in him? Do we trust in him as the Messiah? How about this one? Do you love God's people? There's a lot of people that would say, oh, I love Jesus. I just can't stand his people. I mean, you chuckle, but... There's many who have been hurt in church life, maybe five years ago, maybe 25 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. Maybe you were raised by somebody who had been hurt in church life, and they had it out for the church. They, they couldn't come to a place of being reconciled to a church or to um, other believers. Well, John makes clear if you can't stand God's people, you don't know God. John makes clear that those who know God are those who love their brothers and their sisters with all their flaws. You see, no one's perfect till we get to heaven. Only Jesus was the one that walked on the earth and was perfect. We will not be perfect until we get to heaven. But we are called to love God's people. And that is one of the key signs. That's one of the key tests that John gives us. If you find someone that says, I love God, but I don't love his people, then that is a clear indication. The Bible says, 1 John says, that they are a liar. I mean, it, it really calls it out. Notice the next one. Not only do you love God's people, but do you love God? Do you love God? And it, and it is interesting that in two places it comes up, do you love God's people um, before it even talks about loving God? That's how important it is to, to God that we would love other people. But here we see that it's also, do we love God? And do we love God is shown most by the last one here, do you obey God? Do you do what he said to do? And you say, well, what all does he said to do? did he say to do? Well, read his word. Read his word and you begin to see what all he's called us to do, to live for him, to honor him, to love others, to serve others, to proclaim his kingdom until he comes, to be faithful to him um, in all of these things, to obey him. So these are the tests of whether or not um, we have genuine and true faith in Jesus, saving faith. How about the third group? First John is a call to repent and to receive the true gospel of Christ. So for those who maybe find themselves failing the test, then the, the logical opportunity here would be for as you're hearing the gospel and you start to see this and, and you say, well, wait a minute, no, I, 
there are certain groups of people that I hate, or there are certain people at church, you know, whatever it is, or maybe I, I continue in this area or that area of flagrant disobedience, and we start to see that, that, that First John is very clear, those who go on sinning as if nothing ever changed need to repent of their sins and follow Christ. That's always the answer to sin, is to repent of it to turn back from it. In fact, Jesus came preaching, repent and believe. That's what he came preaching. He started off with turn away from your sin and self and turn to me. And so what can we do? He, we repent and receive the gospel by, and, and how does John do this? He reveals false doctrine. That's that first one there. He reveals false doctrine. Notice this, also revealing hypocrisy. We've already talked about that. Somebody who says, I love God, but hates his brother. The Bible says that he's a liar. And notice what the types of hypocrisy can be. It can be inconsistency. You say one thing, but you do another. It can be pretense. You say one thing, but you really, you, you really do not even intend to do that. It is simply a facade. What about blame? Simply blaming others. Well, you know, I, I say this, but it's... Perhaps to some degree, even the victimization thing, or just complacency. Uh, it's not that important. It's no big deal. Do you remember Friday night? We looked at the words um, of stricken, smitten, and afflicted. That's the name of a hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And that third verse of stricken, smitten, and afflicted said, do we think rightly about our sin? Do we not think very much of it? I mean, like, in the volume of our thoughts or in the importance of our thoughts? Do we not realize that it's our sin for which Jesus died? How serious is our sin? Well, it's so serious that the second person of the Trinity would become a man, live among us, and then he would lay down his life for us. The innocent would lay down his life for the guilty. Our sin is a serious thing. And, and First John is saying, you will take it seriously. You will turn to live for God in the midst of your life. How about this? It reveals perhaps just the flat-out rebellion of our heart um, in this. So false doctrine, hypocrisy, and rebellion are part of what we need to repent of. And then as we do that, we turn and receive the true gospel of Christ. You can do that today if you've never come to faith in Jesus. Well, it's not only this call away from sin into Christ and to evaluate that, but I love 1 John because it's such an encouraging letter. You say, well, is this really encouraging? Oh, yeah. It's incredibly encouraging. If you go back and look at even some of the texts that we studied and some of the messages we studied, do you remember with me um, that series of messages about how God testifies to Jesus Christ, his son? God says, this is my son. And we looked at what the texts are saying, and that's incredibly encouraging. But the last five messages have been all about the assurances of God. 1 John 1.9 is one of those verses that has been one of the main assurance verses in my life. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is amazing encouragement. 
I mean, how many times have I sinned against God, sinned against others, and just realized the foolishness and the hurt of my sin and come before God with a repentant heart and said, Lord, I did it again. And I, I come before you and ask your forgiveness. And I remember 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we will confess our sins, he comes and he forgives us of all of our unrighteousness. What a, what a massive encouragement. But there's, here at the end of chapter 5, so at the end of the book, notice these verses, 13, 15, 18, 19, and then finally today, 20. These are the things, the, the assurances of believers. The true, true believers can know that they have eternal life. I mean, how much better does it get than that? It says, these things have been written that you, may, that you may know. These things have been written to those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you to wonder about that. God wants you to know that. Look at verse 15. True believers can know that God hears them. And we also see in verse 15 that true believers can know that God answers those prayers. So he hears our prayers and he answers those prayers. These are tremendous assurances. Look at verse 18. True believers can know that God has delivered them from sin and Satan. Go back and read it for yourself. That's what it says, that those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ are no longer under the bondage of sin. They have been set free from the bondage of sin and the evil one can do them no harm. This is a glorious truth. Verse 19, verse 19, last week, true believers can know whose kingdom they are in. They don't have to wonder, am I in God's kingdom? Am I in Satan's kingdom? The Bible makes very clear there are two kingdoms, and you are a subject of one of those two kingdoms. Either you're a subject, a servant of God, or you are a subject and a servant of God of Satan. Jesus would look at the religious leaders and say, you are of your father, the devil. Because you're a liar, he is a liar. He is a liar, and that's why you're a liar. You do your will of the devil. You serve your father, the devil. And that is because they were not trusting in God, come to God in submission to him in Christ. Look at verse 20. We come to this one today, and this is what 1 John ends with. And it's very important. You know, last words are often very important. Notice this. True believers can know the one true God. True believers can know the one true God. Now, before you turn your page over, it is often said that in the world, there's anywhere between 8 and 10,000 gods that are worshipped in a theological, religious sense. Eight in 10,000 gods. Unless you're Hindu. And if you're Hindu, you could be worshiping up to 330 million gods. Now, my friends, Satan loves to distract worship from God. Our hearts were designed long before the fall to worship. We were made to worship. That's just what we were made to do. That's the primary thing that we were made to do. And we will worship something. Just understand this. It's not that 
human beings don't worship anything. No, human beings are always worshiping. It's just a matter of what are they worshiping. And so what we see here is, is that John is saying, when you come to God and Jesus changes your life, he gives you the opportunity to worship the one true God. And so this morning, I want us to see this. Notice the text at the top of the page. And notice these we know. This is the box in the top of the page. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You see, that's one of those, one of those ones that's talking about the bondage of sin has been broken. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We just talked about that one just a moment ago. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. You see, these are the blessed assurances. You can be assured of this. We can know it. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You can know which kingdom that you're in, either God's kingdom or the power of the evil one. And then we come to the last one in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is what? True. And we are in him who is what? True. In his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at the last part. He is the what? The true God. And what? Eternal life. And then he ends the whole letter with little children. What does it say? Keep yourselves from idols. So idolatry is the basis of all of our other sin. When we seek to worship our own lives, we seek to worship our own pleasure, we seek to worship our own will, when we seek to worship the things that are around us or maybe other gods around us. You know, some of you may live in your God, your house. Some of you may drive your God, your car. Some of you may go and spend nine to five at your God, your job. Some of you may stare and gaze and swipe at your God, right? Some of you may check it online, sign in with all the passwords, all of the security, HTTPS, da 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 and be able to get in through that VPN tunnel drive to your great nest egg and all of your investments. And that may be you check on your God and see how it's doing. You know, there's, there's a lot of different gods that we can have. And what, what we see here, John is saying, oh, no, come and worship the true God and live in him. And I want us to see this morning how he does that in us. Very quickly on the second side of your page there, let's read that passage again. And I want you to see this. In verse 20, it says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So this is a gift from him. He gives us understanding. And why does he give us that understanding? Look what it says there. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Now I want you to know this. Fill this in. Knowing God and being known by God is the greatest fulfillment in all of human life. 
There is no greater fulfillment than knowing God and being known by God. And John wants you to know God. Maybe you're here this morning for the first time ever in your life. Maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a long time. Maybe you've never heard testimonies like we're heard this morning. Maybe you've never heard a group of people crazy sing like that um, at the top of their lungs saying hallelujah um, to the lamb who is on the throne. Maybe this is all new to you, but I, I just want you to see here that the greatest fulfillment you could ever have is knowing the God over life and death. That you can have the confidence and the the strength to look at the grave and say, Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And when I go to the grave, I will live too. You see, this is the promise of God, that it's eternal life. And we see that at the end of verse 20. Look what it says at the end of verse 20. He is the true God and what? Eternal life. I mean, this is what Jack Sparrow was looking for. And fighting over. This is what they claim to have up in St. Augustine. I used to live in St. Augustine. Don't pay the money for it. You're going to be so important. Go to the Fountain of Youth. Ponce de Leon did not find the Fountain of Youth in St. Augustine. How many of y'all paid to go there? You're not, going to, you're not going to raise your hand, are you? Some of you are. As somebody who used to live there, Marcy and I drive by that part of town going, mm, look at all those people. No, the true eternal life is not found in, found in an earthly fountain coming out of the Florida Aquifer, which actually was from the St. John, John's County Municipal Water Department, by the way. It wasn't even an artesian well. The true life is so much richer and so much truer and so real, and it's only the The maker of life is the one who can give that. And so knowing God and being known by God is the greatest fulfillment that we can have. In fact, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this was written in 1646 in England and Scotland, the the churches that were there, and it's simply 107 simple questions and answers. And every family with young children in this church, I believe every one of you ought to be reading that with your children. You can pick it up in the bookstore. We have a few different versions of various catechisms that are really good. What is a catechism? The idea is questions and answers in order to be able to understand and grow in the basic truths of how God works and what he does, basic biblical theology. And so notice here with me in the Westminster, what question are we looking at here? In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the first question? It's very important. I mean, this is question number one, and it gets right to the the crux of the matter. It says, what is the chief end of man? I mean, that means, why do we exist? What is the chief? means number one, the top. What is the chief end of man? What, what What is our fulfillment? What is everything about us? And then the answer, right from the catechism, says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so I'm going to ask the question, what is the chief end of man? And I would like for you to answer. Okay, here we go. What is the chief end of man? Put out there to the side. To know him. That's what it means. To know him is to glorify him. Because as you get to know him, you can't help but glorify him. 
When you start to learn of who he is, when you start to learn of his power, and when you start to learn of his wrath, but you also learn of his grace and his love, when you see that, you cannot help but worship him and glorify him. So this is to know him. And that's what John is getting at. That this is the chief end for you. This is the ultimate blessing for you. This is the ultimate assurance that you can have. Look at the next statement here. The modern missions movement motto, there's three, four M's there. I don't know how that happened. Didn't intend for that, actually. There's a few mottos that could be part of the modern missions movement, but over the last 150 years, this one has risen to the top as perhaps... The most common statement about what it means um, to, to be on mission with God, to do anything, and to, to be a Christian that's obeying God's word. Notice what it says. The modern missions movement motto is this, to know Christ and to make him known. To know Christ. If, you, if, you want, if you're looking for a raison d'etre, if you're looking for a reason to be, this is a great one. To know Christ and to make him known, because that's what he's commanded us to do. He hasn't called you to just know him and keep it to yourself. We see throughout the scripture that God has called his people to know him and to proclaim him um, before the world. And so we see this. Now, uh, John 17, verse 3, is so appropriate for this. And remember with me that John 17 is one of those passages that is just before Jesus would go to the cross. So this is on the night that he would be betrayed. So this is before his betrayal. He is praying to the Father, and I want you to see what he prays. He says, and Jesus is praying to the Father before going to the cross. Notice here, and this is eternal life, that they may, that, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this is the key of what John is later writing about in 1 John chapter 5. He's quoting, really, the Lord Jesus and this concept of the Lord Jesus, that eternal life comes from knowing him, and knowing him comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Now, I would like to highlight one of the phrases in John 17, verse 3, but I can't do it. Because every single phrase there is worthy of highlight. In fact, notice the screen in front of you. I want to work through it. The first phrase there is, and this is eternal life. This is where life comes from. And where does life come from? That they know you. Jesus is saying, God, if these people will just know you, they will have eternal life. And you are the only true God. There's not 330 million of you. There's not eight to 10,000 of you. There's not any that are made in a factory or built with human hands that are you, or carved out of wood or metal or stone, or cooked in a kitchen. <laughs> There, there, there is no God like you, the one true God. And then look at the, the last part there. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And you remember with me that his name is his function. Jesus means Yahweh saves or God saves. And Christ means the anointed one. And so this is the one to save us and gives us eternal life. 
So knowing God and being known by God is the greatest fulfillment. Look at the next part that we see from this passage in verse 20, that we can have confidence in knowing the God who is true because of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence in knowing the God who is true because of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 20, I put it there, so that we may know him who is, and then we see these three times the word true is brought up. Do you see it? Circle there. I've made it highlight. Circle the word true underneath that verse 20. Circle the word who is true again, and then he who is true again. Now just remember with me that whenever you're studying the Bible, here's a basic principle. When something is repeated two, three, four, or ever how many times, that is a point of emphasis. Um, we can't hear inflection of voice necessarily when our eyes are reading words on a page, but we can look for cues. There's things called chiasms in the scripture that build up to a point that point out an emphasis. There are different words that are used. There are different things that happen with vocabulary. There are different things that happen with, with grammar. But one of the most obvious things that when the Bible is emphasizing something, it is something that is repeated. And so when you see a word being repeated, understand that's an important part of the passage. That's an important emphasis. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when your mother said, now listen, don't ride your bike over the bridge. Now, now, don't ride your bike over the bridge. If you ride your bike over the bridge, uh, you know, don't ride your bike over the, don't go near that bridge. Now, what's her point as you're leaving the house? Don't go over the bridge. She repeated it, and she repeated it, and she repeated it. And that's part of what we see here. I want you to notice that this picture of the, of the true God is the one that you need, the true God that you can know and walk with him. And notice this, how do we know the true God? Look at verse 20. And we are in him who is true, middle of verse 20, in his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is how we know. I want you to remember with me, why is Jesus Christ so central to us knowing that this is God and knowing the God who calls us to worship him. You see, fill it in. It was Jesus Christ who, promised, who was promised by God and put out there to the, back, to the side, the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, even in the third chapter of Genesis, right at the fall, we see that God is bringing salvation. He is going to bring redemption. And that progressively becomes clearer and clearer through the Old Testament. We see that he has promised one will come to forgive our sins. We call him Messiah. Notice this. It was Jesus Christ who came in the flesh just as it was prophesied. So it was Jesus who came and was born of a virgin, born into a, a human body, raised from an infant into manhood. And then notice what he does as he does this. He comes proclaiming the word of God. And we see that in several places 
of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is that he will declare the truth of God. That's what the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, did. That's why Jesus taught so much. I want you to think about the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to think about the parables. I want you to think about all of the teaching moments, whether in front of a crowd, standing on a boat, or whether with his disciples in a quiet place, he was proclaiming and teaching the truth of God. That's why it's so important for you to study the Bible, for you to read the Word of God, for you to see what Jesus said and what he says throughout the other parts of his Word. So Jesus Christ is revealing God through being the promised one, coming in the flesh, proclaiming the Word. Look at the fourth one there, proving the power of God. How did he prove the power of God? He showed that he was God. He would come up to a lame man and he would say, rise up and walk. The guy would jump to his feet. He would come to a leper and he would heal the leper. A blind man would see, a deaf man would, uh, would hear, a man who could not speak, the mute would, would, sp- would, would speak. The woman who had um, a, a problem that no doctor could solve simply by her touching just the edge of his garment, that she would be healed. You see, Jesus had a power. He had a power to stand up in front of the Sea of Galilee in all of its rage and say, peace, be still. And it says, immediately it became calm. So what is all this showing the disciples? What is all this showing us through their record and through their keeping? He is proving the power of God. What is the ultimate power of God that is proven here? The resurrection. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he is God. And so we come to this point where we see that the Father raises the Son from the dead through the power of the Spirit, and we see that this is God. And this is the one who opens the door for us to know God. So how is it that you're saved? By God. Who was Jesus? He was God. Who was on the cross? It was God on the cross. It was God who died for your sins. Let that go into your mind and your heart. It was God paying the price for your sins. And then finally, we see the motivation behind every bit of it. It was Jesus Christ who came revealing the love of God. How else would we know that God was a loving God without the needed sacrifice of Christ? It was through the sacrifice of Christ that we see the character of God, the humility of God, the love of God. Right out there to the side, Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see this picture of his love. In fact, John 3.16 is perhaps um, the most succinct and beautiful depiction um, of the gospel, of the big picture. Notice this. It gives us the It it reveals the motivation of God in all of this. In John 3.16, let's read it out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Could it become any clearer, any simpler in the picture 
of God's great motivation for us. He loved us. In Romans chapter 1, in fact, the very beginning of Romans, notice this, this is Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, and through 6, we see the resurrection declared, and we see the importance of the resurrection here, and this, this directly correlates to not only this morning's calendar celebration, but this directly cal- correlates to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. I want you to see the prominence of the resurrection. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, the, the apostle Paul is the one writing. That's why his name comes first. Look what he says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You remember with me that Jesus was promised in the Holy Scriptures. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. You see, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he comes through an earthly line through Mary in David, as was prophesied, the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. But in verse 4, we see that he is from the Son of God. He is the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. And then look what it says. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we begin to see that in his character, in his resurrection power character, we see who he is. Look at verse 5. Though whom we have re- excuse me, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the, faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Are you called to belong to Jesus Christ? How can you know that you're called to belong to Jesus Christ? Here's how you can know. At some point along the way, you begin to sense that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's how you can know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And as time goes on, you begin to realize that you need to be saved from your sin. And so... By God's grace, you hear and sense him calling you to believe. And then you come to realize this is the true God. This is God's plan of salvation. How can I know that I'm called to belong to Jesus Christ? I hear him. I feel him. I sense him. I hear what he has done calling me to believe the gospel. And by his grace, we come to him and we let go of the things that are around us. We stop worshiping other gods. We stop worshiping other things. We have, by his grace, the call and the the unction to believe in Jesus Christ. This is how we can know that we are not of ourselves, but we are of Jesus Christ. He calls us to believe upon him. He calls us to forsake the name of other gods and to only embrace the name of the one true God. So notice that there, that it is through this power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord 
that this God is the one true God. In fact, when we come to the resurrection, notice this. This is great homework for you this week, uh, maybe even this afternoon after um, the dinner wears off and everything else and you wake up from a nap. Maybe you would go back and circle back on this outline and go and take out your Bible and read Acts chapter 2. There's a wonderful sermon there. It's very short, but it's Peter's sermon. And you can flip over to Acts chapter 13 and you can read Paul's sermon there. And what I would encourage you to do is to notice the prominence of the resurrection in both of those sermons. I encourage you to do that. Go study it for yourself this afternoon. This is the resurrection day. This is the Sunday that we celebrate his resurrection. And my friends, what a great way for you to personally, intimately worship with God, turn to his word, read his word, and, uh, and say, Lord, your resurrection, show it to me in Peter's sermon. Show it to me in Paul's sermon. You see, what it, see what, it, what it proves is this, is that he is the life-giving true God. There's no other God that can give life. There's other gods that can promise life, but they cannot deliver. Aphrodite can promise all kinds of things, but cannot deliver. There are all kinds of gods that make promises to us that don't deliver. I mean, uh, the car, after a while, it's not going to deliver on its promises. And you're going to go back and look up the brochure out of your file and go, man, what a piece of junk. Can't believe I worshipped it. And you, know, you, you finally, well, nothing's worse than a boat. You know, the, there's two great days in every boat owner's life. The day he gets the boat, and the day he gets rid of the boat. As Timmy, glad to see it go. Bye. Whew, Lord, thank you for deliverance, right? You see, there's many other things that promise life, but there's the only one true God who delivers on that promise. And it is so worth it to know him. And Easter reminds us of how we can come to know him. You see, in Romans chapter 5, or excuse me, excuse me, Romans chapter 10, it says this. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So my friend, the resurrection is everything. It's everything to us. We can sing hallelujah. We can sing rejoice. We can sing, oh, give thanks for God's great grace in our life. Today, just two questions of application. I've already given you some homework that's just above this. I hope that you will do that. But notice two questions of application. Number one, how does your faith measure up to the tests in 1st John. That's over on the first side and you can read through the entire letter of 1st John in just a few minutes. I would encourage you to consider that for yourself. As we finish this and as you've learned about the tests, how does your faith measure up to those tests? Is there concern? Is there concern about whether your faith is genuine, your life is genuine? Scripture tells us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. 
The scripture tells us to be sure of our salvation. Is there concern? Or perhaps you might find that there's great encouragement in this. Maybe you would say, oh, by God's grace, I see these words of concern, yes, and the Lord allows, I use that, I allow the Lord to use that in my heart, but I also rejoice in the tremendous encouragement found throughout this letter and found throughout especially chapter 5. Number two, how does the last command, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, fit with the last section? How does the last command fit with the last section? Now, what is the last command? What is the final words of this entire letter? It's in verse 21. Let's read it out loud together. Verse 21 at the top of the page in the box. What does it say? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So how does that last command fit with this whole last section? And how, especially we saw true, 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 the true God versus the false. How does it fit And maybe how does it fit with the whole letter? Those would be good things for you to discuss as a family. Those would be good things for you to discuss with a friend. Those would be good things for you to pray over and say, what do these idols mean? And why would John tell a bunch of believers, little children, keep yourselves from idols? Why would he do that? There's good reason, and we would do well to listen to the warning. Would you stand with me for prayer? Holy Father, this morning we have celebrated the great power that you have over sin and death. Lord, we have celebrated your love. Lord, it would be one thing for you to be able to do this, but you're not only able, but you're also willing. And we see that you're not only willing, but you want to save your people. And so the question is, Lord, do we want you like you want us? I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would truly desire you, Lord, that we would come to love you, that we would be fervently devoted to you. And that is truly only a work that you can do in us. Lord, I pray that wherever we don't love you, that you would reveal it. I pray that where we love other things of the world more than you, that you would cause our hearts to see it with the eyes of our heart, Lord, with the ears of our heart, that we would see and listen to what you've said. Father, I pray this morning that we would turn away wherever there's sin in our hearts and unbelief and that we would turn to repentance and, Lord, belief. Maybe for some today who have never come to faith in Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they would say, no longer do I want to run and 
unbelief, but by God's grace today, I want to run to him in belief. No longer do I want to hold out and just endlessly question or hold out and stubbornly refuse. But I sense you calling me to surrender. Lord, I pray today for those who are hearing your voice, I pray that they would obey. And for Christians, I pray that they would be encouraged in this way today, that we would rejoice in all that you have done, that we may walk in eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray.